That's damn fine coffee you got here in Twin Peaks. And damn good cherry pie. Brilliant. <laughs> I have absolutely no idea what's going on. Welcome to the Twin Peaks Rewatch Podcast from the Idle Thumbs Network. I'm Chris Remo. I'm Jake Rodkin. This is the 33rd episode of the show. We're going to be wrapping up this season, I guess, of the Twin Peaks Rewatch Podcast. <laughs> yeah, weird. Yeah. Um, and talking about uh, your reactions to the show as a whole, you know, the entirety of Twin Peaks, as you've uh, written into us and talked about on the forums. And uh, we're also just going to discuss a few of the peripheral kind of spinoffs and uh, tributes and parodies and so on that have sprung up uh, around Twin Peaks. Um, unless something changes, this is this is probably going to be the last episode of this podcast um, for a while. Uh, we're definitely planning on bringing it back once the new episodes uh, air on Showtime, the 16-episode season. I thought it was 18. Oh, 18 episodes. I thought it was like 30 episodes. It's like the 47 episode season. Um, and I'm really looking forward to that. I think that'll be a weird, interesting experience. Yeah. That's supposed to be next year. That seems incredibly quick for me, but I guess Mm -hmm. we'll see. Uh, on that note, actually really quickly before we get into the the rest of the stuff, I just saw that, that Showtime is launching a very similar service to what HBO has launched, which allows you to pay, uh, in this case, $11 a month to gain access to Showtime content whether or not you have a cable subscription. Just so it's, that, a, it's a streaming version. Of exactly. Yeah. So that's a really good, that is good news for me. Someone who yeah, doesn't I have was, cable. I was really concerned about it because I have, I have the, the cheapest possible cable that has no ancillary services really other than some streaming stuff. But yeah, being able to get Twin Peaks for mm-hmm. $11 a month seems fine by yeah, me. It's fine with me. Um, so uh, on that note, let's... I guess start off with reader mail. Yeah. So why not? we we solicited uh, your as you know, I mean we we've been keeping up with the forums the entire run of the show and they've been really amazing and hopefully the people some still some people stick around on the forums. If you go to uh, twinpeaksrewatch.com and click the forums link and then go to the Twin Peaks Rewatch subforum, uh, there's just really been an amazing community of people. I'm sure if you're listening still to the podcast at this point, you 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 were probably aware of that. You might be one of those people. Um but there have been really incredible discussions. My favorite so far being the Firewalk With Me thread, yeah, which is I, I think has just been an amazing exploration of that film and, and really validates, I think, that being a substantial film with a lot to talk about. Yep. I know people in the forums have wanted to potentially self-motivate going through Lynch's other movies and things like oh, that. So I great. think we're going to open up the forum to just new threads from any member on the forum and just see what other stuff goes on in there yeah, after this. Totally. That would be really cool. Um, all right. So, um, I'm not, I don't have a particular order. I'm, I'm going to read these, uh, these emails in. I'm just going to, I'm just going to kind of go in the order that I have them here. Dear so. Twin Peaks Rewatch, what happened to Leo? <laughs> I apologize if I don't get to your, to your email. It's just inevitable. I'm sorry. I'm not, I'm not really ranking these by objective quality. I'm just trying to get, get in as, as many of the ones as I can that, that, that struck me as, as interesting. So Matt Humphrey writes. Uh, so Matt, Matt Humphrey, by the way, is the is one of the hosts of the Twin Peaks podcast. So uh, another Twin Peaks. Yes, podcast. a podcast called the Twin Peaks yes, podcast. Yes, he writes. Just want to thank you both for a really enjoyable show. Loved your take on everything. 
For your final episode, I'd love to ask you your opinion on the Twin Peaks Festival and the filming locations in Washington State. Ever since I originally saw the show in 2010, I was captivated by the scenery and atmosphere of the Pacific Northwest. I felt so drawn to it that I sought out anything thematically similar to Twin Peaks. I discovered Deadly Premonition and Alan Wake, two video games. I fell in love with Alan Wake especially because of the visual fidelity of those dark forests with the large trees and rolling clouds of fog. It felt like I was exploring a playable version of Twin Peaks. In 2014, I could stand it no longer. I had to experience these mysterious woods and rural towns myself. So I went to the 2014 Twin Peaks Fest. I traveled from the east coast of Canada to the, to the west coast. The giant trees and shooting locations were amazing, but I went in in the summer, and so I missed out on one of the most important aspects, the mist and the fog. While I was there, I felt more like I was in the dry, sunny, fire walk with me version of Twin Peaks instead of the pilot episode or the Alan Wake video game. I was a bit disappointed with that, but the Twin Peaks Festival and the cool people made up for it. I'm going again this year. Could you ever see yourself attending the festival or visiting the shooting locations in the future? Um, and then he has a, a video that he did of his, of he and his wife enjoy, uh, him and his wife enjoying the uh, Twin Peaks Fest. That's cool. I can't say how happy I am that Twin Peaks 2016 will be shot on location in Washington in the fall. This is more important to me than the inclusion of Battle Menti's music, David Lynch's directing, and even getting a resolution to the cliffhangers in the season two finale. It's all about those moody woods and quiet towns with the seedy underbelly for me. Thanks again, Matt Humphrey, host of the Twin Peaks podcast. Um, you should start because you actually did go. You drove through those. I did, yeah, right, yeah, right yes. before we filmed. Yeah, right before we filmed. Right before yeah, we recorded I think this was podcast. A coincidence, as I recall, Sarah and I drove up there because she she's living in Seattle to because she's going to school there for a couple of years, and um, it's amazing. I. When did I go up there? What I'm trying to think. That must have been fall. Mm-hmm. So that must have been an appropriate. Your photos just look like yeah, they, the exact opening yes, credits of Twin they, Peaks. Yeah, they really do. It's shocking. I mean, some of the areas less so, right? I mean, the diner, once you're in, especially <laughs> the interior of the diner is nothing to do with. They're apparently restoring the diner to its like really? 90s look. Oh, my God. Or at least to, to what the double R would look like were it sure. later as, yeah, yeah, as yeah. opposed to the evolutionary path that it actually took. Right. Yeah. yeah, that is great. That's really exciting. Um. But yeah, being there, driving up there and seeing those locations. And yeah, as you say, Jake, the one that really stuck with me is the one that just looks like the ones that just look like the opening credits, which I guess are uh, Snoqualmie Falls and um, the kind of bend of highway with the mountains in the background and the Twin Peaks sign, which the sign is not there. The sign's not there, but it, it otherwise looks completely identical. Colors are the same. It's amazing. It's 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 cool. If you're if you're in a uh, in a position to um drive out there if you're you know geographically convenient i would i would recommend it um as far as twin peaks festival um we have a friend who went to that right yeah uh yeah our friend jared who actually is the person who really like three people sort of tried to get me into twin peaks around college and jared is the one who sold me on it but yeah he went to the twin peaks festival in around 2002 which must have been a good time to go to the twin peaks festival because it was before the dvds actually came out i think but uh so that was probably incredibly small but he had a great time at that and he has tried to get me to go for years and i just haven't had the time yeah but um it seems like if you want to just go all in on Mm -hmm. uh twin peaks fan things that's probably the thing to do yep um it's been going on for a long time too i mean one of the interesting things about twin the sort of twin peaks cult phenomenon is that it it started pretty soon after the show it seems like it started during the run of the show but really based on i mean yeah 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 but i mean things i feel like things can't really become a cult sensation quite in a certain way until they're gone that's true you know that's, what i mean and then people feel like they're keeping it alive as opposed to although like, twin enjoying peaks, the zeitgeist twin peaks had like 
Twin Peaks might have become a cult immediately into the second season, though, <laughs> when true. it ha- when it like already was yeah, getting canceled, having write-in off. campaigns yeah, yeah, and no, all it's, sorts it's of like true. save Twin Peaks stuff. Yeah, it's true. And and as a yes, and that's that's really stark when you the the comparison between those two states of Twin Peaks fandom are very stark when you look at all of the media artifacts f- from around the sort of high point of the first season or the break in between seasons one and two. Like the, you know, the SNL skit. Like, we'll talk about this stuff later. Yeah, in the episode, like it, it's like, on The Simpsons, it's on Saturday Night Live, it's on Sesame yeah, Street. Like, it's yeah. everywhere, and, and it, then it is nowhere. And that, right. It's a great, right. It's, and then that's, that's, I think, when it, you know, becomes a cult thing. And like, and then it's, it's very not soon until, after you get Twin Peaks Fest. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, I, yeah. And then it's, I think it's only after the DVDs come out and it ends up on streaming that it starts re entering the zeitgeist and getting right. things like that. Right. That, like that like psych episode or whatever else. Again. Yeah. 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 Mm hmm. Oh, and as far as the world of Twin Peaks showing up in other media, I never really, I never mentioned it on the podcast, but I made a, a video game. Uh, I used to work at a game company called Telltale Games. They make narrative-based, puzzle-based stuff. And there was a game that I worked on with uh, my friend Sean, who hosts the Idle Thumbs video game podcast with me and Chris, mm-hmm. called Puzzle Agent. And it was a game very similar to like to uh, a series uh, called Professor Layton that's on the Nintendo DS, but the Puzzle Agent games are a little more story-heavy, and they're very, very, very much inspired by Twin Peaks. I wasn't as into Twin Peaks when I was working on that, but one of the other writers on the game really was. But uh, it's in a northwestern factory town, uh, and an FBI agent is sent out, and he talks into a tape recorder. Like, it's got all, mm-hmm. it's got a bunch of Twin Peaks tropes. Um, I don't know how much to talk about it. But- well, I, I have one kind of overarching thing to say about that, genre basically which you know includes things like Dudley Premonition and Alan Wake Mm -hmm. as mentioned by Matt Humphreys and Puzzle Agent as you're talking about and I definitely think that that there is a like big gap between those things and then what Twin Peaks is because Twin Peaks itself was like synthesizing um these sort of soap opera plots and this weird mythology and the supernatural and kind of the lightest, lightest trappings of sort of a crime procedural show or something. Um, and then setting it in a location. And so it, it's, it's pastiche. It's not really, I don't really think I would call Twin Peaks pastiche, but like its influences are those things. And then a striking oh, setting, but then you have this like the other things are crop just, of other things. They're influenced that, by Twin Peaks. Yeah. They're influenced by the yeah. concentrated version of that. And then almost always they go weirder faster. You know, like in in, yes. a, in a in a because it's already assumed that it's like oh you got the Pacific Northwest weird things are going to happen. Yep. Like instead of those things being shocking and like unnerving and surprising, they're like the genre. Um, and that I think that I I want Jake, you and I both have seen the uh first episode of the sort of I guess limited run series potentially Wayward Pines, which Fox is airing right now. Yep. Which has been frequently compared to uh, Twin Peaks. And I was shocked to find how much it is not like Twin Peaks after watching. Uh, I watched the first two episodes actually. No, it all it feels like it just it just feels like Lost. I mean, yes, even, the thing feels, is, it even feels more extreme to me than Lost. Like Lost starts with a plane wreck, but yeah. at least Lost goes a huge part of a season where the big question is what is happening. Right. Whereas Where so, Pines is just like yeah, Where Pines is about a a Secret Service <laughs> agent who crashes his car outside a small town in Idaho. And ends up in this crazy Stepford town. Um, and I'm not spoiling anything to say that because it is so, so, so quickly revealed in a way that 
definitely is not what Twin Peaks is, but does feel like it is part of this post Twin Peaks weird small town supernatural slash conspiracy. Well, it, it's it's like, like it, ooh, if tw- like it feels like what the entire compressed Twin Peaks looks like when you look at it through its rearview mirror. Like if you look at the entire atmospheric haze of Twin Peaks compressed down into like you know one cubic foot mm-hmm. you get what what wayward pines is as opposed to what twin peaks is to experience right which kind of ends up making it a totally different thing because part of when twin peaks is at its best you have that just kind of slow marination like you're marinating in this yep. this whole town and it's all these things anyway i don't want to talk about wayward pines very much but uh but i thought that was it's worth it's worth talking about that whole subgenre yeah you know that includes all of those other yep. things it is true uh, okay, so DX writes in, hey, Chris and Jake, uh, if you'll allow me a retrospective, I think it'll be enlightening. I think it's fair to say the biggest factor which has elevated Twin Peaks to cult show status and given it such a devoted fan following all these years later is the mythology. It distinguishes it, in, distinguishes it from other forgotten police procedurals and soap operas of its time and puts it in, in a genre that fans of occult horror and science fiction can dig into. Because of that, it's interesting to look at the haphazard way the lore evolved. Most of the elements that stick out in our minds, Killer Bob, the one-armed, one-armed Mike, the Firewalk With Me poem, the Red Room of 25 Years Later, Backward Speech, the Little Man and His Non-Sequiturs About Gum, originate from the unscripted ending that Lynch filmed for the original pilot, which his contract stipulated needed to have an ending so it could be distributed in Europe as a film. Most of this footage was just later re-edited by Lynch into the context of Cooper's Dream at Episode 2 while filming Season 1. It's funny how even though all of its contents were filmed first and devoid of any context to do with the actual writing once the show was picked up for a series, the other writers turned that dream into a plot device while Lynch was away filming Wild at Heart. Break the code, solve the crime became the Twin Peaks tagline, and there were several pieces of evidence explicitly connected to Cooper's dreams by the characters in the show, such as the red curtains in Jock's cabin, the convenience store beside the vet Bob Lidecker's office, and Leland's compulsive dancing. Later, Frost tried to turn the narrative into a mythic struggle of good versus evil with the purgatorial white and black lodges, which, as you've pointed out, were never intended to be the Red Room in the script. And of course, while he was away filming Storyville, that's the movie that um, Frost was making during filming A Firewalk With Me, uh, Peyton and Engels threw in wacky asides like UFOs, Owl Cave, and the Hooded Star Guardian, thankfully none of which were ever followed up by Lynch. But once Lynch returned to direct the finale and made the Black Lodge that same Red Room an actual timeless otherworldly place, then the initial device of the dream as a guide falls apart with its final form being a place with its own metaphysical reality and inhabitants. For example, the fact that the curtains are red can't just be a clue to lead Cooper to Jacques' cabin anymore. Similarly, the little man's line about his cousin who looks, quote, almost exactly like Laura Palmer can't really have been referring to Maddie because she wasn't even conceived as a character when that scene was shot. What we know is the lore of Peaks wasn't really hammered out by Lynch and Frost working together. Frost was heavily into the Western esoteric tradition and used its framework to try and give cultural context and genre significance to Lynch's completely unique yet baffling and mesmerizing imagery. By the end, this resulted in a sort of hybrid Frankenstein mythology that Lynch ran with as the cosmic background for the film. The difference becomes especially clear if you compare Peaks to Lynch films like Lost Highway or Mulholland Drive, where most viewers assume figures like the Mystery Man and the Creature Behind the Diner are purely psychology projections because there's no mythological framework being applied to it. But imagine if Mulholland Drive, the pilot, had been made into a series that other writers and directors would work on. Then we'd be speculating on the nature of the cowboy and the woman with the blue hair. Because of all this, I'm extremely interested to see what a true unified Lynch and Frost vision for the mythology of the show will look like in the new series, with ideas and scripts they've been collaborating together on for years now. Not since the pilot has Twin Peaks had that level of careful scrutiny applied to its setting. Looking forward to hearing more of you in 2016. Daniel, steal this corn on the forums. 
That is a great email. Yep. That I, that I think is very, I mean, we've talked about elements of that before as we've come to them in the series. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, this thing was like, you know, conceived here by this, but I never had that sort of omnibus overview of like, this is really the, basically the framework with the sort of completely ersatz framework, you know, that that resulted in the mythology that is Twin Peaks that, as he says, is totally treated as like a consistent canon um, by viewers. And in some sense has to be right, because all we have really is the text that's on the screen and like it doesn't really matter what created it necessarily if it's there. If it's there, you can talk about it. But nonetheless, there is a level of intentionality, I think, that people ascribe to this stuff that might be more intense than than reality. Yeah. Um, and he's, he's totally right that season three of Twin Peaks is, is really going to be the first time that an entire sustained run, yep. you know, 18, whatever, 16 or 18, I guess, 18 episodes worth of content in a row will have been completely consistently overseen by these same two voices, which is just not how Twin Peaks has ever been as much as it's referred to as like a Twin Pe- as a David Lynch, pro- people in, I think, casual discourse, you say, oh yeah, the David Lynch show. Um, well, it was a David Lynch and Mark Frost show, but it wasn't even really that. Right. <laughs> Most of that, the time. Although some of the the highest high points of the show are the ones when those two are actually actively working together. Like Abs- the, oh, yeah. the no, pilot, no, the absolutely. start of the second season are two yes. of my favorite yes. hours of Twin Peaks. I Yes. I my When I say that, it was not in any way to say that those guys don't deserve credit for right. what's great about Twin Peaks. They deserve the most credit for it. <laughs> Certainly. What I'm, what I'm saying is we've never actually seen what it looks like when they both stick around for a long period of time right. and compl- and guide the show episode by episode for an entire arc. Yep. We've never seen that. With the only complicating factor being that it's 25 years later and they're completely different people in completely different places in their career than they yes. were when they did the show the first time. Absolutely, yeah. So Definitely. weird. It's going to be weird. I know. It's going to be really weird. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, I love that email and, I, and that is yeah. one of the things that I'm really um, looking forward to with the show. Because I'm not – so the kind of fan that I am, um, I'm not necessarily invested in like all of the characters and plot lines being resolved in a, in a particular way. Like I don't necessarily really care. I, I am more interested – the thing that I am most interested in w- with respect to season three is this exact thing that this, that this yes. listener writes in about, which, which is, is what does it is look it? like yeah. when these two guys two and a half decades later – reconceive you know I mean, maybe from their standpoint they're not reconceiving it maybe from their star- standpoint their intention is to just pick up one day later but of course that's impossible you know they like, have to pick up 25 years later yeah yeah um because um, everyone's I'm, just old uh it's actually to that point we talked about the the, the final episode of the show and about the sort of it, out of control everyone's getting blown up and just like killed and all the story arcs going to crazy places i think that a few people on the forums pointed out about that that we didn't really bring up but this uh talking about twin peaks season three coming out next year reminded me of is uh the final episode of twin peaks the show has an air of finality to it in part because it is the series because it's the, the last episode that was ever produced mm-hmm. but what was pointed out on the forums was uh people saying well i'm sure that one of the things they were going for with this was just the same way that they closed out the first season with every single story arc has to end on an impossible cliffhanger, like right. Jacoby getting shot or whatever else mm-hmm. happens. And it was probably, uh, in some ways, another sort of 
attempt at a power play to get the show renewed, except that nobody cared. So it right. just died <laughs> with, with everything ending in this most outrageous, stupid way possible. And instead yeah. it was like, well, that's just all going to dangle forever. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, I hadn't thought about that at all. I had always been seeing it through the lens of, oh, this is how they're just trying to go out. But it probably was also, this is their attempt to make those story arcs jump so far that they, the network has no choice but to give them space to land. And then they just, you know. Yeah. Uh, and it's funny because I don't, I, you know, I kind of, I, the, the way that, that the, 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 that the series ends with Cooper in particular is obviously the most extreme example of that, right? It's like the character you've been following yep. for, you know, two seasons and now it's like potentially the latest incarnation of this like malevolent force. Um, I've simultaneously, like at the same time in my brain, I hold the, that is like the, the one case where the sort of fan thing gets to me and I'm like, oh my God, I need to know what happens to Cooper. This is crazy. Like what a crazy thing to end on. But it and also feels other, like, it feels like an end to his yeah, journey exactly. as well. exactly. Yeah. On the other hand, I'm like, man, I love that it ends that way. It, it also it's always, it's always yeah. been this like dual thing in my brain. It, it feels to me like this, and I, I have no research or knowledge to back this up. So, I mean, it's just my like postulation, but it feels like the script for that episode was vying hard for a season three, whereas Lynch might have been saying goodbye to Twin Peaks with that episode in a lot of ways. Like well, it feels the, like, yeah, and and it, I th- I think that that scene changes a lot when you add in the other material from Fire Walk with Me. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, the, like the, the 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 deleted scenes from yeah, it. You mean, yeah, yeah. I kind of feel like it's more final in the show, and the movie almost makes it less final. Well, it's because the movie starts the tape playing again in a way that the show didn't. Right. Yeah. I mean, just even by just going. Anyway, here there's more minutes of Cooper's story exist after this, even if they're as borderline inconsequential as the things are that are in the movie. Just saying that the story continues is well. It also sets it also it's also just portrays Cooper as like you know Cooper or what what Doppelganger Cooper or Bob or whatever he is in the moment. Like doesn't matter. Yeah. Like, you know that character, whatever it is, has like motivations and yeah. actions and things that he's doing. Whereas at the end of the show, it's just like crazy thing and yeah well, yeah it it even a smidgen of the insane questions that are posed are answered and that right. already is kind of exactly, a diminishing yeah. thing so so here's an email from michael mariano that i that i think is is relevant to what we're talking about in terms of coming back 25 years later he writes dear chris and jake what do you think what the what do you think the cast of twin peaks 2016 will be like will it focus mainly on the returning characters or will it focus on new characters the 2012 revival revival of dallas had a largely young cast but also featured prominent supporting roles for Larry Hagman, Patrick Duffy, and other original series cast members. It tried to cater to both a new and old fan base and was not entirely successful at either. A significant amount of Twin Peaks took place at the high schools or among high school students. But 25 years later, even Lucy's unborn baby would be out of college. Little Nicky would be in his mid-30s. Even beyond the balance of old and new, what would Twin Peaks need from new cast members to still feel like Twin Peaks? Mike. And that is a question that I find personally almost impossible to speculate on. Me too. Because like a show, when Dallas comes back, it's a network show and it is aiming to basically be a relaunch. Yeah. It wants to be the new Dallas. Like I didn't didn't watch any uh, version of Dallas, including the new one, but I, I can only imagine that the old characters are there, like he's like the, like he says to get old fans in, but also just to be. To add a sense of gravitas yeah, and history bridge, to yeah. what is basically launching a new, right. a new it's cast. Like, it's like, you know, it's why, um, it's why Nimoy was in the, the new Star Trek, Star Trek yeah. movie for the same, um, you know, same thing. 
But, you know, in a TV show, you keep them on so that the old audience continues to watch. Whereas with Twin Peaks, it's showing up on a premium network, and it is entirely run by the same people who ran the first one, and the only people they've announced returning are old casts. I'm sure there is going to be a ton of new new characters, but it's just impossible to speculate because I don't know what Frost and Lynch are even making the story about. You know, right. like it's yeah, it's because you could do a story that doesn't really focus on the youth of Twin Peaks anymore and just focuses on those same characters getting old. Mm-hmm. But it seems unlike David Lynch to make a to not have a bunch of weird teens. <laughs> That's true. And the other thing though that David Lynch also is kind of a pretty sentimental guy though is like as far as I understand it. And so I'm not surprised that he – I think this is going to make use of the original cast a lot more than – certainly a lot more than like the Dallas reboot. Yeah. You know, something like that. But as you as you opened this by saying, we really we really have no way to speculate. But it's an interesting – I mean it, – Yeah, I mean I it's guess – interesting thing those guys have to figure out. That's for sure. Yeah, the, 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 the question that is entirely like you can just mentally speculate on it but it doesn't mean anything is sort of – who is the who are the main character is going to be in mm-hmm. in Twin Peaks? Like is because you could see a world where the, where the main character in quotes of Twin Peaks twenty sixteen is not Dale Cooper. Sure, yeah, it seems like that would be weird. Mm-hmm. It's Agent Desmond, man, <laughs> investigating new serial killer uh, Agent Cooper. I want Kiefer Sutherland to come back for a second. Oh, that'd be funny. There's a. Uh, Whatever. So, all right. So, uh, so Sarah, my, my fiance, I had a question about this that is, I think, relevant to the stuff we've been talking about now in terms of bringing back 25 years later. That when she posed it to me, made my fucking brain explode. Okay. Which was, will the third season of Twin Peaks have Twitter in it? Which is essentially shorthand for a larger question, which is just, will this show actually be set in the modern era or will it be set in this, like, Lynch, ver- you know, because Twin Peaks was set in 1991 or whatever, but it's it, it almost feels like it was set in the two, only three decades earlier. 90s decades culture earlier. only bleeds in when Peyton and Engels take control. Yeah. It feels like when you end up with like Ted Raimi's get character who's just like right weird. He's like a guy who would guy. be in the background of like some book reading David Foster Wallace is doing. Like that's <laughs> that's what that guy looks like to me. Um which is what I also imagine where I would see Peyton and Engels is sitting in the background of a David Foster Wallace book reading, thinking that they're smarter than him. Um, <laughs> so what do, I don't know. What do you think? I, David Lynch does not seem like the type to me. Like David Lynch got super obsessed with basically v- video cam, like video, like nineties era video cameras, like 15 years after digital film became, yeah, the, when the, when David Lynch, it seems like when he heard that people were shooting, releasing video theatrically, he wasn't like, oh, I need to buy an Alexa or a Red or whatever. He was like, sweet, I'm going to buy this janky like Sony, HDV Sony like camera camcorder. and I'm going <laughs> to smack it around and like yeah. make the most insane, gross looking yep. uh, nighttime footage you could ever make. Yep. And I understand why he was fascinated with that. Like if, it, if you're like, oh, I can release video theatrically and I can embrace the weird aesthetics mm-hmm. of video. It, 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 it was, Like I have to say, watching Inland Empire in a theater was not necessarily like the most pleasant cinematic experience I've ever had, but it was definitely interesting. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I don't, I, I don't want that to be what Twin Peaks is like, obviously, just being honest. But um, I, it also seems like that is not what Twin Peaks is going to be. I don't think it's going to be. I don't think it's going to be. But anyway, I only bring that up because... 
David Lynch's relationship with technology is very particular in that way. And it's hard for me to imagine people walking around in any version of Twin Peaks and checking their Twitter feed. Right, because Twin Peaks was was in the early 90s, but it was it was shocking as hell when Wyndham Earl had a stupid computer. But I everyone know, that seems so weird. Everyone had a computer with a CD-ROM drive in like you could go to a public library in 1992 and there were a billion full color monitor high-res computer displays that all had CD-ROM drives. Mm-hmm. Like that was the beginning of I mean that, that was the beginning. I it don't think the, that was ubiquitous it, yet. It was, it was it was it was present enough that it should it not be a surprising thing. Like, thing. I'm sure that the episodes of Law and Order that were on at that time didn't quite have a desk on everyone's computer, but there were desks. There were computer or didn't have a computer on everyone's desk, but there were computers around. But there it. were a couple. But the Twin yeah. Peaks Sheriff's Department has a big old analog punch phone, and that's yeah, the that's extent true. of its technology. And I, yeah. I mean, I suspect that's as intrusive as it's going to be. Is like the Sheriff's Department will have flat screen TVs in a couple yeah. places that's in the background. True. People will probably have smartphones, but they probably will only be using them. About as much as people use a normal. Until phone. we hear that David Lynch has become transfixed with on-screen graphics showing people's text messages to show how the, the version kids- of this that I can imagine would be David Lynch weirdly just finds out about Grinder or something. This is like a one weird, fi- you know what I mean? Just one weird fixation where he hears about a thing like a few years later and just becomes fixated on it. People for- are swiping to date. Yeah, ex- exactly. God, yeah. Gordon, Gordon Cole. Gordon Cole on Tinder. Um- I've been swiping left. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's probably not what's what's gonna no, happen. No, that's probably not what's gonna. But happen. yeah, I... weird. Um, all right. So, what else do we have here? <clears throat> um, there's some some general thought. Okay, so we've been talking a lot about season three. Um, some more general thoughts about Bobby Briggs will be a, a venture capitalist, like he'll be an angel investor, oh, God, multi-millionaire. Yeah. <laughs> um, some more general thoughts about the series as a whole. So John Halski writes, hey, guys, it was cool to hear my email read in your last episode. He runs the social network Ghostwood. <laughs> not 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 listener John Halski writing in. Sorry. You, no. You're talking about Bobby Briggs. <laughs> yeah, Bobby Briggs. Okay. Uh, anyway, he says, I have a quick anecdote f- for you to file under odds and ends. A couple of times in the past two episodes, you mentioned the shooting locations for the Palmer House in Firewalk. I think his acronym is wrong here. I assume he means Firewalk With Me. He wrote, he wrote the acronym FWIW for what it's worth. Oh. Um, I think he means Firewalk With Me. And fire what it's worth. <laughs> uh, but what you may now know is that the real-life Palmer House was recently put up for sale. I recently moved to Seattle, and as coincidence had it, my wife and I were looking to buy at the time. When word got to my brother, who originally introduced me to Twin Peaks when I was in grade school and is among the bigger David Lynch de- devotees that I know, he flipped out and demanded incessantly that I check it out. I scheduled a visit with a broker without mentioning the reason for my interest. The visit itself was sur- was wonderfully surreal, just familiar enough to feel like I'd walked into a half-remembered dream. The exterior and the ceiling fan among the staircase were definitely standout moments. As for the rest of the house, though, it was a freaking disaster. One full bedroom for a th- three-story house, an almost comical number of cabinets everywhere you looked and in places they really don't belong, and wiring that needed to be completely gutted and redone. The less said about the basement, the better. I spent the next few weeks in shouting matches with my brother over my refusal to drop half a million dollars on the Twin <laughs> Twin Peaks money pit purely for novelty's sake. As the tour was wrapping up, the broker asked me if I had any more questions. I mentioned coyly that I'd heard the house had been used as a shooting location for a film once without mentioning which. She, coyly, responded with something along the lines of, oh yeah, I think I might have heard something about that. Maybe it was my imagination, but I think, uh, I, think I saw something in her eyes that she was onto me. Surely she must have figured out by then that I dragged her there on a Saturday morning just to geek out with no intentions of making an honest offer on the house. The whole thing was even in the Huffington Post. 
Needless to say, I do not currently live in the Laura Palmer house, something my brother will never let, never let me live down. Beyond the structural problems, it would have added an extra hour to my commute, and I couldn't get over the thought that if we someday have kids, they'd never get over the nightmare of one day seeing a father rape and murder his daughter, as well as all the other general strangers, literally happening inside their own house on the TV screen. So, Jeez. all the best, John. Crazy. Yeah. Man, what a good email to get in. Also, like the Palmer house has a basement. That was never used in the show, but that's no, I know. Worst. It's true. Yeah. I also never think of, I guess maybe houses in the Northwest have basements. I, I never think of houses on the West Coast having them just because I only live in California where Man, no one has basements. He sent us a, he sent us a vine that he made of this. It's crazy. It's just him inside the oh, house man, and it's the got ceiling the ceiling fan, fan good. going. He just recreated the, the like Dutch angle shot of the yep. ceiling fan. Um, we should put that on the forum along with all the other links for this. Yeah, episode. we should. Yes. Good, good, good call. All right. Let's see what else we have here. What a good real estate uh, trip that would be. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. If you're in addition to visiting the shooting locations of. Uh, also get a real estate just, tour and put an offer <laughs> yeah. in on Palmer's house. Yep. If you're if you were really wealthy and you had the money to just dump into re- to just, re- you know, restoring that whole thing, that would be. <laughs> put that just gross uh, like 90s mom furniture in there and mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. Ryan Phillips writes, Revisiting Lynch on Women. Dear Chris and Jake, uh, Following the conclusion of Twin Peaks Firewalk with me, I've been going through early Twin Peaks rewatches and I was struck by something. Early in the show, you discuss Lynch's take on women, and Chris makes the point that one way of assessing the director's view on women is not only the agency they have over the external lives, but the richness of their internal experience. The early episodes exemplify their richness, and Firewalk with me is essentially a, port- a portrait of the internal experience of Laura Palmer. However, in late season two, this richness is suddenly yanked out from under these characters, and they are, for the most part, left quailing one-note stereotypes, e.g. Audrey, Catherine, Josie, and Lucy. My question was, was Lynch ahead of his time in his suggestion that women have internal lives, or were later writers behind in theirs? Can you think of other examples of shows in the early 90s which speak to this? Thanks, as always, Arch. I think, saying that I think it's fair to say that everyone was behind the times yeah. here. I mean, that, I, don't think this is, I don't think that was like a new to the 90s. I mean, I think you can go back centuries and find yes, repre- representations that. of uh, of women with interior lives exist in fiction forever. And I mean, like, that's not to say that that, that it is they've not culturally a, respected. Right? Uh, yeah, they've not always been as prevalent as they should be. People certainly, suck. yeah. But like, I mean, if 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 but, Lynch is drawing from anything, he's drawing probably from like the strong writing of women characters in like noir and sort of golden age mm-hmm. leading ladies in Hollywood, but plus just being a smart perceptive person. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I and I, I think that that what he says about fire walk with me, you know, to me, that is one of the most fascinating things about that movie. And I think is really a, one of the achievements of that film that it really didn't get credit for at the time. Um, and that's not because there weren't, examples of compelling interior lives of women in fiction. Um, although maybe it's maybe what the listener means specifically is that they're relatively rare on television. Um, at least in the, in when the level of intensity that, it, that, that, that movie yeah. takes it. Um, <clears throat> I, that fire walk with me was really critically panned when it was released. And what, some of the really interesting discussion on the forums about that movie, uh, makes the point that, Discussions of domestic abuse, sexual abuse, um, incest, things like this were just not common in mainstream popular culture at the time. And so the the way in which that movie presents it, which is very intense and, and 
very uncomfortable, um, wasn't really appreciated for its depth and was, was more seen as, as maybe like schlocky or like, just difficult to watch or, or exploitative. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, a lot of yeah, the critical people were offended re- that they were even subjected to viewing it. Right. It seems like. Yes. And I think that some people still have that reaction. Um, I think it's, I think it's really powerful and I think there are relatively few films that delve that deeply into any character's internal state. I mean, regardless of whether it's about, you know, abuse or anything else. I mean, it's like that movie really is an, is just a, a very sustained, uh, you know, the second half, the second two thirds of it, I guess, anyway, really, really sustained internal portrait of that character in a way yep. that is like rare. Did you see the movie Wild? No. It was, ba- it was based on the book Wild by Gerald Strade, which mm-hmm. is like a it's, a, it's a memoir of Gerald Strade basically uh, walking up the Pacific Coast Trail or hiking the Pacific Coast Trail, you know, from Mexico up to up to, to Canada, right? To Canada, basically. Yeah. Her, just alone herself. And they made a movie out of it um, last year, I guess, hmm, okay. with uh, Reese Witherspoon. Okay. And um, uh, it was directed by, uh, oh, I think it was Anton Corbin who directed it. Uh, I hope I'm not making that up. But one of the, the reason I bring it up is because um, it uh, it is one of the few other examples of films I've seen recently that also spends as much time in the head of its principal character. I mean that 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 movie is really um, about that character's internal state just throughout it's it's intense oh sorry it's by jean-marc valet was the director i'm sorry okay that was my bad it was same guy who directed um dallas buyers club okay yeah um anyway and they're both about women and they both are you know these long sustained explorations of interior life and i I thought uh I, i know it's not that related to twin peaks really but because these things are still rare i think it's worth mentioning and man it does firewalk with me reveal as this as this uh, listener pointed out, how crappily women characters are treated in Twin Peaks season two. That's <laughs> yeah, true. It feels like just little care to possible scorn is is felt towards the female cast yeah, of Twin Peaks really in the second true. season. Yeah, it's really gross. There's just a general just ugh, lack of respect. Yeah, it's not. It's not great. Mm-mm. It's stupid. <laughs> I call it stupid. Yeah. Um, his other question about thinking of other shows in the early '90s would speak to this. I'm not enough of a student, I guess, of the of the era to to really be able. No, to speak I don't on really that know what TV. I mean, I'm sure there was other standout TV in the early '90s, but I was not watching it. Yeah. Sorry about that. Yep. Sorry. Let's see. So, uh, speaking of more Firewalk with me, Alex Piercy says, "Hey guys, I'm not sure if this is something you missed or just didn't bring it up." But there's a part of Firewalk With Me that directly connects with the finale. The scene occurs when Laura and Donna go to the roadhouse where Donna gets drugged and starts kissing the guy in the pink room. When Laura sees Donna, she starts screaming and runs towards Jacques Renault in a really frantic, crazy way. Laura's actions sync up exactly with the scene in the red room where Laura or Laura's doppelganger starts screaming and runs up towards the camera. The flashing lights Lynch is so fond of are also a part of both scenes. I wanted to bring it up since it was such a striking connection to the original series. Other connections include... um, the original other connections between the original series Red Room include Let's Rock being written on Chet Desmond's windshield and Laura snapping her fingers in the same way as in the finale. Did you guys like these direct connections between the abstract nature of the Red Room and the real world? Thanks, Alec. P.S. Fun fact. I realized the music playing during the Pink Room segment was familiar to me. 
It turns out Jim Guthrie, the composer for the video game Sword and Sorcery, covered this track in said game. It's titled Ode to a Room. I just thought you'd like to know. Oh, crazy. Okay. Yeah. I listen to that soundtrack when I'm working often, and that totally... It, it, I have not <laughs> thought about that. Yeah, yeah it's, it is that, though. Crazy. It's funny because, I mean, Let's Rock written on the windshield, that one made me sort of go, okay, whatever. Like, I, I, I did a, a slight... Much, I did a slight eye roll at mm-hmm. that. But um, the other ones were... Like, the thing with Laura screaming in the pink room was a thing that, like, flashed in my brain as familiar, and it was only after I watched the... Or only after I thought back on it that I remembered that it was totally a callback to that crazy scream in the final episode of Twin Peaks. But that that's how a lot of that stuff ends up hitting me is just sort of I maybe I'm just not an observant viewer or I'm not watching things critically enough, but like when when that happens it just feels like an echo of something familiar and mm-hmm, sort of reverberant yeah. to me as a viewer. And that's kind of my preferred way to view this stuff. But mm-hmm. like I don't know if I like or dislike it. It just feels like the way the ways that Twin Peaks sort of folds in on itself in a specific yet still dreamlike manner is a thing that doesn't bother me at all when it does it. It's when there's when there's an explicit reference like someone writing "Let's Rock" in lipstick on the windshield of a car that I'm like, what was the was the guy there? Like, why is that? Right. Like, I don't like. Mm-hmm. Did Agent Desmond disappear in a flash of light and that? like after image is somehow the words let's rock written on the car. Like I don't, that one I don't understand. Yeah. No, I know what you mean. There's sort of a different, there's, there's kind of a distinction between that very explicit reference and then like a mannerism or an echo of something that feels like it could be buried in the subconscious. Exactly. Like Laura, that moment in, in the pink room that, that does really directly mirror the way Laura behaves. Like, I don't know if, if it matters that there's a specific connection, I'm sure that people m- way more observant and tuned into the insane details of this stuff will dr- be able to draw a direct connection. But for me, yeah, it just feels like just for me as an audience viewing it, the same is probably a, my read is that it's a similar thing for Laura, where it is just either a, just a strange out of time memory or reflection or just could be a life coincidence. It doesn't mm-hmm. it doesn't matter to me. It just feels like these things are reflections of each other. You know the the red room, the pink room, real life, different aspects of these characters' lives, like things happening over and over again, is obviously just a thing that happens in Twin Peaks. Yeah. So, it, <laughs> one of the most notable lines in Twin Peaks is, in fact, the character saying it's happening again over and over yeah, again. That's true. <laughs> um. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Um. All right. So, uh, Phil Culbertson's, I guess, more, this is more Firewalk with Me stuff. Writes. I think Lynch works in the film to show that Sarah Palmer is well aware of Leland's continued abuse of Laura. In the scene where Sarah takes something before getting in bed, I don't see that as Leland drugging Sarah. Rather, I see that as Sarah taking the medicine in order to sedate herself enough so that she can try and block out what her husband is about to do. She hesitates at first, but Leland seems to encourage her to take the pill as if saying, it will be easier for you this way. Do you think Sarah is fully aware of the extent of Leland's actions? If so, what do you think this adds to the story, and what might Sarah represent in the broader themes of the show and movie? Love the podcast. Thanks for doing this for all these weeks, Phil. I've never read Sarah as being consciously 100% aware of of anything that's going on, but I feel like there is some sort of avoidance Mm -hmm. tendencies happening on her part, whether or not. Yeah. But that's separate from surfacing and wanting to address what's happening. Yes. I think there is in general a feeling of terrible tension in the, the Palmer house and a, some, some kind of like awful energy running under I don't and I don't mean that necessarily in the literal mythological sense, but like it's quite clear from all of the dinner There's scenes just some and electricity that, no. <laughs> that you know that things are An very undercurrent. uncomfortable and 
I think I think Sarah Palmer has a creeping um, kind of fear about something between her husband and her daughter, but I don't think she, I don't think she would be able to verbalize or consciously like yeah, you just, you just, suggest you, what it you is. You get the feeling that she doesn't like living in that house. <clears throat> yeah, that she doesn't like. Yeah, what's going on with Lila and, and Laura? And it's 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 interesting because I mean the show obviously the show when it was being made does not know what is going to be in Fire Walk with Me, but the so the the way that the show presents a lot of the like Sarah is on edge around Leland and on edge being in her home in the show because it's where her daughter was just killed and because her husband is acting crazy and like crying and smashing yep. Laura's photo and smearing blood all over it and whatever mm-hmm. else is going mm-hmm. on. Um, and I liked that the movie said ex- basically explicitly that is not just because they're grieving over right. their daughter. That is yes. actually because their life is bad. Yes. Like their, yes. their, their, their living situation, like, Laura's death is not just the thing that created their yeah, this, their relationship. Laura, Laura's being death was this all boiling all, over. It wasn't. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't. It, it, it wasn't, wasn't the precipitating genesis. event. Yeah. yeah, and I think again, like I think that, that it's really good that the movie says that because the movie then is also effectively saying that about Twin Peaks as a whole, which the show explicitly states, but then never is able to back up in a way that isn't incredibly cheesy. Where yep. it's like there's always been an evil blah 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 blah, but the, but Fire Walk with me is just like here's what it actually is, mm-hmm. you know, like this mm-hmm. is what's this, is, you know, yep. I don't know. Um, yeah, um, Andrew Gorman writes, "Hey Chris and Jake, I love the episode on Fire Walk with me. As always, uh, I love the thoughts and observations you made in the show and film. I wanted to write in with my thoughts on the change in actress portraying Donna. On the first time, I too wished Laura Flynn Boyle played the part again, but on my second watch, I had a slightly different opinion." Um, as you stated, the movie plunges the viewer into the psyche of Laura Palmer, bending the events of the movie through her lens. Myra Kelly, to me, at least for lack of a better word, is more innocent looking than Laura Flynn Boyle, who had less of a younger looking face. To me, this matches up with how Laura views Donna, especially lining up with how she reacts in the bar scene. I might be reading too, too much into a recasting decision made because Laura Flynn Boyle simply wasn't available, but I thought this, this read might be worth sharing. And then he follows up with another email, so I'll just read that immediately. Um, he says this reading of Donna matches up with how I view other parts of the film that may be incongruous with the series. This version of Twin Peaks is the view Laura has of Twin Peaks. While some of the show, when viewed as an outsider, separates from the perspective of any individual character. Okay, I'm trying to parse the sentence. While some of the show, when viewed as an outsider, separate from the perspective of any individual character, seems charming and quirky, when presented from Laura's perspective is a complete nightmare. Any potential plot conflicts, at least in my reading, is all in service of the dark perspective the movie presents. Maybe I'm reading too much into it here as well, but this is how I view Bobby's murder and Mrs. Palmer not coming forward about Leland as a suspect. I'm thankful for this film because while at times it is difficult to watch, it puts me closer to the perspective that I have not thankfully experienced of being a victim of incest and child abuse than I would ever have experienced. Thanks for hearing my thoughts, Andy Gorman. I think that second part is is a really good read that Firewalk With Me just has a way, way, way more specific subjective mm-hmm. perspective on Twin Peaks, whereas the show is kind of just trying to show this omniscient view or at, at at its most specific it's twin peaks as seen through the eyes of dale cooper yeah that's true um my brain just erased the first email um the first email was i mean it's 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 on the same along the same lines it's about uh the change in actress portraying donna oh yeah and and how that's actually a a, a really widely held Okay. Opinion. There's a there's a lot of people who I believe that who straight up say I wish that 
like the, the, she's the appropriate Donna for the story as portrayed in Firewalk with Me. I've seen people go as far as saying like I wish that she, that Myra Kelly had actually just been cast mm-hmm. as Donna because Crazy. her arc yeah. feels right. Although I I think Laura Flynn Boyle actually felt less appropriate to me as Donna in the early episodes, or just like arbitrary it could be anyone. But I I liked the way that they sort of leaned into Donna trying to appropriate mm-hmm. Laura and the way that Donna smoking and wearing Laura's sunglasses and stuff just goes in a very different direction than Laura in a way that I think Laura Flynn Boyle actually owns in her stronger points in the sort of, as the show progressed. I don't, I mean, this, I guess it just comes down to total personal preference for me personally. Like we don't know what Laura Flynn Boyle's performance would have been like, but I would have preferred personally. I still think to have seen whatever she would have brought to the table, even though we got Mm -hmm. what I think is a notable take on Donna. I, I still just like, for all of the things that one can like about that performance, I think that it weakens the just structural solidity of Twin mm-hmm. Peaks. Is Lara Flynn Boyle coming back in 2016? I'm not sure. Man, if they cast is Myra Kelly as mm-hmm. Donna in Twin Peaks 2016, I will actually be bummed. That no I, would, I would rather Donna is just not in the show. Yeah. Because like Donna has to be in Firewalk with me. I, th- I mean, I think the way that at least the story they tell feels like you need the character of, of Donna Hayward. But if you can't get the actress back for... Uh, Apparently she really wants to. She does? Yeah. Good. Well, weird. <laughs> Everyone wants to. Yeah. Um, all right. So Aaron Lynn writes, Laura and her angels. Hey, Chris and Jake. During the Fire Walk With Me podcast, you touched on the angels throughout the film. Uh, here's how I interpret it. I thought it was interesting that when they're first mentioned in her conversation to Donna, Laura makes it clear that the angels won't save you when you burn up in space. Yet throughout the rest of the film, during the scenes in her bedroom, she continues to look at her painting on her wall of the angels as though she's waiting for them to come out and save her. The angel disappears after she takes a ring and we don't see it again until her death. Laura sees her last angel in the red room with Agent Cooper. Cooper is offering her a comforting arm and looking down at her warmly. This made me ask a cheesy and obvious question. Was he the angel Laura was waiting for? Laura had been trying to escape the awful situation with Bob for most of her life, with death seeming like the only answer. When Cooper stands next to her in the lodge, I felt like his hand on her shoulder is meant to say, it's over. The irony for me is that even if Cooper is her savior, he is also stuck in the Black Lodge with her. Her laugh and cry to me is either relief that she is finally dead or her breaking down because she notices she's finally found help to get out of the hell situation she was stuck in, but that person is also stuck in the lodge with her. This movie scared the crap out of me when I first saw it. I was terrified for Laura and was so happy to know she was going to die and be done with the man Bob who was chasing her. But then she is trapped in the lodge. What an ending. Of course, good Cooper is in, is in, is in there with her. I'll be inter- interested to see how Lynch brings us back into the world and shows us what Dale slash Bob is up to now, Aaron. What are your feelings on that? I don't know. Uh, I've, I've never quite known how to interpret the, uh, the angel stuff. I mean, for some reason, this email puts me in mind and I don't think this is this is a connection that that this that this writer that this listener intended to make and I don't think it's a connection that anyone intended to make in making this stuff but when she talks about it in this way it reminds me of um of uh Audrey like praying essentially to Cooper when she was (laughs) when she was in uh when I just my special agent yeah yeah which has this very like it's definitely played as as him being her, you know, intended like her sort protector. Of savior and protector yeah. and guardian angel kind of figure. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. As far as Laura telling Donna that the angels aren't going to save you, that, that 
that contrasted with the way that Laura has the paint or the, the painting of the angel that she looks at at night and stuff, it feels like <clears throat> Laura telling Donna the thing that she at her sort of most pessimistic or self-told realist believes to be true. But the thing that she hopes to be true is not that like, yes, that's how that I, I totally agree. Yes, I completely agree, which is that the the reason she feels so strongly, the reason she, she phrases it so strongly to Donna is because in her heart, like what she wants more than anything is for the angels to save her. Right, but she's sort but of trying she, to temper her own. Yeah, she's her her, her like what she armor feels are, un, to, are irrational or don't line up with reality. Beliefs. Yeah, she's yeah. trying to come off as the hard nosed right it's, realist it's, who knows better than everyone it's else. But yeah. the world fucking sucks. But then you go to sleep every night being like, I really hope that the world is a good place and that humans yeah. are innately good, even yeah. though my life is showing me inc- <laughs> impossibly tall amounts of evidence to, to, mm-hmm. to prove me wrong. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, do you want to talk about some of the kind of outside content that we've put together? Yeah, I suppose. Are, are you closing out the reader mail for now? Um, I guess so. I, there's, I mean, I could just keep going. I suppose. I'll whatever. I'll read. I'll read one more. Email. Do one more. Let's let's uh, let's just get one more in there. <laughs> this is more firewalk with me. Uh, Sharon Conliffs. I'm sure I'm pronouncing this wrong. I'm sorry. Sharon Conliff writes, "Hi, love the firewalk with me episode and the series in general. It's been great going through it with you." While it doesn't feel like seven months since it started, it also feels like something I've been listening to for ages and I'll miss it when it's gone. Here are a few points from the film I wanted to call out that I thought merited some attention. In the diner scene between Chet and Sam, it's pretty clear that Chet deliberately causes Sam to spill his coffee. It's a touch of mean-spiritedness that along with his violence to the deputy makes him seem a little less Boy Scout than Cooper. Yeah, I think that's correct. Yep. I love the way the film nailed the Laura-Bobby relationship. It's the perfect example of what you described as the film showing the, showing the way all of these things had to have been. Just all the little ways Laura expresses dominance over Bobby, making it clear that she's the one in charge in the relationship. Yeah, that yeah. was also good. That was all that, that. That was such a great um, part of uh, of Cheryl Lee's performance. Just the way that she basically just is dunking on Bobby for mm-hmm. the entirety of their relationship. Yeah, yeah it was... God, her saying, "Did you kill Mike?" over and over again. Yeah, is... what a crazy thing. So, speaking of that, um, next point that he writes is. The guy Bobby kills is the deputy from the first half yes, of the Yes, I noticed that, and I didn't talk about it in any of the episodes, and I meant to bring it up now, that the guy Bobby kills is the Deer Meadow Sheriff's Department deputy, yeah. who I guess is involved in Jacques Renault's coke ring. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> Crazy thing. Uh, he says, you mentioned it seemed odd Donna wouldn't relate the events that take place in the sleazy bar to Laura's murder. Uh, but in the film, you can see one of the guys put something in her drink when they're randomly swabbing bottles, and the camera has a shot from her perspective of the room sw- spinning. The next day with Laura, she seems unable to remember exactly what happened. Um, she'd been roofied and not realized it. If that was the case, she might not remember anything beyond going to the roadhouse, just assuming she drank too much. Yeah, I mean, that's clearly true. I don't remember yeah, I what think, we said I think about she, that. Maybe we, were, we talked we about it a little bit. Stupid. I think she explicitly says something like, I don't even remember how yeah, I got yeah, home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Weird that we wouldn't have comment on that because i feel like i that was obvious that that's what happened and i hope i didn't say something counter to that no we we yeah um all right he continues i'm disappointed there wasn't more love for jacques renault or as he prefers to be know, known the great went he's adv- he's as vacant as a fart you know yeah we didn't we didn't in our in our firewalk with me episode we didn't get into the details of a bunch of stuff but man i was very happy to see jacques renault come back and to just be Peak sleaze, like peak close up mm-hmm. on his face. Yep. Um, also, Harold was in the movie. Harold is his guy. I know, yeah. And we I was not expecting Harold. that. We didn't talk. I mean, yeah. it was a tiny scene. Yeah. But I actually, I, I liked it. I mean, me too. Yeah. In in the there are there are sort of prequel elements of Firewalk with me that are that are not awesome. Although most of them are the ones that are left on the cutting room floor. But I really liked actually seeing Laura and Harold talk for half a second because it 
he was a character that showed up so late in the series but had such an intimate connection to Laura that mm-hmm. their one scene actually you know felt like the yeah. version of that that I would hope exists and it was such a blip in the movie but it was it was mm-hmm. nice yeah, also it was nice to see his house and his set and his character just know, lit, yeah. lit and presented in the way that Lynch actually lights and presents things as opposed to the cheesy mm, yeah. mid-season soap opera version <laughs> sure. of his house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so on that note, actually, next point is the film ties into and references The Secret Diary of Laura Palmer, a tie-in book released between season one and two that was supposed to have been the diary Harold was given to keep secret. Um, this, by the way, was written by Jennifer Lynch, David Lynch's daughter. Yes. She was 22 at the time, which is crazy to think about yeah. uh, to me. The ending of the diary does contradict the movie, though, as she writes things that take place after she gives the book to Harold. The big twist in the diary... Okay, spoiler warning, if you want to read this diary and you haven't yet and you don't want to know what happened at the end, skip forward like 30 seconds from now. The big twist in the diary is that at the end, Laura reveals that she's pregnant, and the implication is that she was killed because of this. Obviously, this is not something that comes up in the show. The other tie-in books are worth reading if you get a chance. The autobiography of Dale Cooper has virtually zero connection to the show, beyond showing a version of the events leading up to Windermere's wife being killed, but it's an entertaining read. The Access Guide to Twin Peaks was written to hint at a potential Season 3 plot development when that was still a possibility, and makes multiple references to a, quote, mystery play. One is to an actual play that used to traditionally be acted out in Glastonbury Grove, while the other is a headline from an old college football story. It mentions Harry Truman and Hawk as playing for Twin Peaks against a rival college, and Hawk's erratic behavior after receiving a head injury, leading to him scoring the game-winning touchdown. The headline is, Mystery Play Saves Twin Peaks. Oh my god. So you have a mystery play, theatrical performance, and a mystery play. Yeah, also Twin Peaks has a college now? I guess. Does he mean high school? I don't know. Let's Um, hope that Twin Peaks also just has a state university in it. Yeah. By the way, the shooting script for the film was available. There are a bunch of extra scenes, including a fist fight between Chet and the obstructive sheriff, a scene at the end that explicitly ties into the finale, and a bunch of random scenes with town folk, which I think made it into deleted scenes. They did, and we talked about them. Yes. Um, anyway, that's everything I had. Just wanted to say I've loved the podcast and look forward to the recap version next year. Sweet. Um, that That is a... Oh, do you have uh, things to say about that? Because I think it is a good segue into yep. Ancillary Twin Peaks. Yes. Um, yes. I don't know exactly how we're going to run down this stuff. We asked for some suggestions for this <clears> stuff, and people were probably justifiably more interested in talking about Firewalk with me and about the end of the series than they were about talking about ancillary, goofy, Twin Peaks stuff. Um, but it seems worth going over a couple things, yeah. just both sort of legitimately interesting seeming or ridiculous, dumb things that would just, if you're really missing Twin Peaks and want to get more out of it, there's a couple things. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the most the most notable thing to mention is uh, Reflections and Oral History of Twin Peaks, uh, which is yes. a book that came out semi-recently, right? It has to be pretty new. Yeah, I have it right in front of me. Let me let me look. Uh, this book was was compiled by Brad Dukes, and it came out in 2014. Yeah, really, very recently. Um, and this is this is it's a pretty good sized book. It's a few hundred pages and about 300 pages, and it just it's consists of basically interview format recollections about Twin Peak Twin Peaks um, with members of the crew. Um, some members of the cast, mainly mainly the crew, but also the cast. Um, and it has a lot of the uh, of the anecdotes that have been discussed on the forums and in some cases on our podcast. Um, it's really well put together. It's a really nice, just 
piece. Yep. The, um, the impression that I get from this book and from the discussion about it on the forums is that it is a Twin Peaks examination that, that goes into – that treats Twin Peaks as a complete work as opposed to just discussing the David Lynch episodes or just discussing how it lands mm-hmm. in his career or just discussing the phenomenon of the first season. Like it talks a lot – I get the impression at least from quotes that I've read on the forums that it goes into the Peyton Angles uh, inv- uh, era of the show and their involvement and just sort of – I think having watched – all of Twin Peaks and talked about it well, on this and, podcast. And ABC executives and yeah, you know, I I am really excited to actually read through this book because it feels like if you've been listening along the way that we've been talking about it, you're probably in a very good position to read this book now and just have in your brain enough working context of the complete run of Twin Peaks that you wouldn't need to even look up a lot of side reference. You could just follow this book along pretty mm-hmm. well. Yep, um, and that. That seems like the sort of most notable piece of Peaks Ephemera to come out in like the yeah. last decade. Yes. Um, um, <clears throat> and then, you know, we can quickly mention those two tie-in kind of pseudo-novels, The uh, Secret Diary of Laura Palmer and The Autobiographic- Autobiography of Dale Cooper. Um, the Secret Diary of Laura Palmer is pretty widely available. It's very easy to find. Um, the Autobiography of Dale Cooper costs like hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's been out of print forever. But I think it's there's like a free PDF available online um, for that reason, um, and those are uh, those are the kind of things that I'm not super crazy about. Um, I started reading the Laura Palmer one, uh, and it's kind of cool. And there's you know there's some authenticity to the sort of uh, teenage girl voice, I suppose. But yep, I've I've heard people. Uh including people on our forums have said that it's, it's a thing that sometimes people have used as a, as a bridge between the show and the film, as far as sort of getting inside of Laura Palmer's head. But I think as has been discussed by readers and us in this episode, the way that people are willing to engage with this, the content in Firewalk with me as just audience members and as members of just our culture has opened up enough that I feel like Firewalk with me is a thing you can probably just watch after watching Twin Peaks and you don't need any, I agree. you don't need a lot of hedging or a lot of explaining. I think, um, I don't know. I opened, I opened this entire Twin Peaks rewatch podcast by saying that I started to read the secret diary of Laura Palmer and stopped. And that's still my opinion on it. I mean, that said, I know there are people for whom it is a recommended read along with the rest of Twin Peaks. It's just not for me, I Mm -hmm. guess. And there, there are other official publications that were made sort of, at again, like contemporary to Twin Peaks, you know, released right around that time, like Twin Peaks and Access Guide to the Town, which was um, kind of attributed to the Twin Peaks Chamber of Commerce. Mm-hmm. There was an audio book, the of the Diane tapes, basically, um, that was performed by Kyle McLaughlin. Um, the Twin Peaks Gazette was a, a fake newspaper. Um, stuff like that. There, there were a number of those things, yep. and and I, I'm not really the the type of fan to like really excavate all that stuff but it's all out there if you if you want yeah more stuff um and then i guess <clears throat> the the most quick to collect goofy ancillary twin peaks stuff is when twin peaks just hits popular culture and i think right. i think the majority of that stuff is stuff that we've talked we've gl- sort of glanced at in the past but it's mostly stuff that seems like it hit right at twin peaks mm-hmm. season one's height um and i like it just because of its of like as we said earlier in this episode just evidence of how extremely 
captivating yes. Twin Peaks was to American culture because like there we'll we'll link all the stuff in the forum for this episode, but like Kyle McLaughlin was on Saturday Night Live and there was an extended to the point of like being not minutes. good <laughs> yeah. sketch where Dale Cooper comes to, is in Twin Peaks and they postulate their end as this must have come up at, right after season one aired. It has to, because they're, they say, Oh, well, Leo Johnson confessed and he's the killer. And it's this whole thing about how Cooper is unwilling to accept that Leo is the killer. Right. Uh, because he believes in wacky mythology. And mm-hmm. like, it's my, my favorite thing about this is that Conan O'Brien plays deputy Andy, yeah. which is really good casting, but <laughs> yeah, I, I it's, it's largely boring. But then also twin peaks shows up on the Simpsons, uh, where Homer watches it. And, but my, my favorite goofy Twin Peaks thing, just because of how impenetrable it is to its audience, is there's an episode of Sesame Street where Cookie Monster is oh, yeah. Agent, Cooper, yes. Agent Dale Cooper and goes to Twin Peaks and just, like, really likes the cookies that he's served in the diner and stuff. Like, what a what an insane thing that is. No kid is going to have any I idea. Like what Sesame it, Street often does things like that. Oh, I know. That. But, like, yeah. It's just. But, yeah, you're right. I mean, in terms of the. Yes. Remember that time when Cookie Monster fell into a David Lynch universe for uh, <laughs> for a sketch on Sesame Street? Obviously, that's only there for the parents. The joke in that actually is very similar to the joke in the SNL one because the joke in Twin Beaks is that he's trying to figure out oh, the mystery of why it's called Twin Pe- Twin Beaks. Yes. And all the birds there have two beaks. Yes. And it's right in front of his face. He doesn't realize it. And that's the exact same joke they make on SNL, which yes. is that Leo's there just screaming in his face like, I killed her. And Cooper still is unwilling to accept is it. So Leo, that, is Leo Chris Farley in that SNL? Oh, I, Who, think, I think so. Anyway. I can't remember. But um, Phil Hartman as Leland is actually pretty good. Yes. I will say. Um, but that that must have just been the, like, that clearly was something people seized on. Of just being like, why is he so transfixed by his dreams and yeah, all these things yeah, when yeah, he yeah. should just be doing mm-hmm. hard forensics? Act, like, I don't want to get too into that, but re- through this entire rewatch of Twin Peaks, I was actually surprised and delighted by how much like hard forensics fetishization was also in <laughs> twin know. peaks like not what, what you remember about it even yeah. in the film there's yeah. so much just like even more microscopic so combing over evidence like yeah weird blood spatter trajectories and mm-hmm. flesh world issues and fingernails and just ugh, all the sort of stuff that you get in like zodiac is basically mm-hmm. i know um, good and i guess probably my well, hold on, fi- real, real quick since you very quickly glanced over the simpsons stuff Oh. We've got an email about The Simpsons stuff. Oh, I'm going to read that. Sean Lane writes, Hi, guys. I think I'm supposed to send in references to Twin Peaks, so I wanted to throw Simpsons out there, even though uh, other people probably already have. What I, I haven't. Fi- what, I, what I find hilarious is that upon rewatching the first appearance of Twin Peaks on The Simpsons, I see the stoplight in the background. I suppose that was an essential Twin Peaks essence, at least to the animators. Then he links to this YouTube video of Homer Simpson watching Twin Peaks, which is this sort of like... Um, sound alike battlementy jazz music playing while Homer sits on his couch watching the TV and the white horse is dancing with the giant under a stoplight and Homer goes that's brilliant I don't know what it means yeah uh, so then he says the second time Twin Peaks is referenced is much more profound for me because much like continuously referenced- oh my god I forgot that the who shot Mr. Burns episode yeah. has a red room sequence yeah man because much like the continually referenced movies the graduate the godfather and citizen Kane my first exposure to any of this stuff was solely The Simpsons. Same. I saw that episode of The Simpsons way before I understood what Twin Peaks was. Yeah. And when I when that backwards talking – anyway, sorry. I, I'm jumping ahead of the email. So often I can't rewatch these things without thinking of how The Simpsons did it. So every time the man from another place spoke in the Red Room, I could not take my mind off of Lisa Simpson's – Lisa Simpson chanting Burns suit in the same weird sort of reverse language. I don't think I realized until watching the Simpsons episode after watching Twin Peaks is that who shot Mr. Burns case was essentially solved the same way with an important clue from the Red Room. 
I suppose this, this isn't actually clever, but I found it amusing. Also, I cannot find a compressed and badly recorded YouTube video of this one, so hopefully you guys have seen it. Thanks for the podcast, Sean. I compl- nothing. I just completely forgot about that. Who Shot Mr. Burns was a cheesy, like, that was the Simpsons going for a gratuitous cliffhanger mm-hmm. ending to a season. Well, it was the, the Who Shot JR thing. Yeah, and yeah. that episode, I think, had a lot of people get really mad at it for the Simpsons trying to do that, but that that two episodes of The Simpsons is two of my favorite episodes of The Simpsons because of, like, the way that it, they just, it's, I think people got mad at it for being like a cheesy grab at publicity, but you could tell the people who wrote that show were just like, it's also a love letter to all Mm -hmm. serialized TV drama, mystery tropes, whatever stuff. But yeah, that, um, that dream is entirely the red room. And I, I always, I always forget about that where Lisa Simpson is saying this suit burns better and is holding a flaming card in a room with red curtains, and then she just snaps out of the backwards talking and says, just look at Mr. Burns's suit. <laughs> I think it's Chief Wiggum who's having that dream, which is a good Simpsons character to, for some reason, be giving <laughs> cryptic clues. Um, yeah. So uh, so here's another email from Jonathan Decker that mentions another uh, sort of Twin Peaks tribute in popular culture. Um, hey, Thumbs, in terms of extra Twin Peaks stuff to watch, the TV show Psych did a Twin Peaks reunion episode called Dual Spires in 2010, featuring seven of the original cast. Also, the cartoon Gravity Falls is excellent and clearly inspired by Twin Peaks, making a few direct nods to it. The Red Room design appears in location. There's a lot of owl imagery, etc. Anyway, love the podcast. Take care. Jonathan Decker, a.k.a. Lochno. So I know you've seen that. that I, saw, I saw that psych episode. I actually... So I saw that episode because a bunch of friends of mine who are Twin Peaks fans said, oh, there's this crazy episode of this show, Psych, that is Twin Peaks themed. Um and that ended up actually making me go back and watch a bunch of Psych, but right. <laughs> uh, I don't I don't know if I can recommend Psych on a Twin Peaks podcast because Psych is like a crime, like mystery, murder, procedural, but it's of the modern kind where the main character it's like a it's like a buddy, lighthearted sort of comedy situation. Right. But there's also crimes that are being solved. Like the premise of Psych is there's a guy who just has a basically is good at intuiting what's going on in a crime scene. But for some reason, no one believes him. So he pretends that he's psychic, which makes me infuriated because I just <laughs> like I think the characterizations are good. The mystery writing is good. I just wish that stupid conceit of him being psychic wasn't there. And it was just a show about people who are good right. at their job. But whatever. Um, the people who make that show are obviously giant Twin Peaks fans because they did this episode, which feels like it, like it's actually I think the reason that that Dana, my girlfriend, went back and watched Twin Peaks because she watched Psych and this show there's not a whole lot to get into, but it like it does have a ton of a ton of like uh, I guess I could read the entire cast of it, but the most notable one for me is that Ray Wise is in it. Um, but Ray Wise, Ray Wise had been in the show like two seasons earlier. Oh, so crazy. when they did a Twin Peaks episode, they brought his character back. Oh man, played by Ray Wise, but his hair turned white since they last saw him. <laughs> <laughs> but like, um, it it has a ton of people from Twin Peaks. They go and shoot. Not I don't think they shoot it in the same locations, but they shoot it in a place that is very evocative of it. It has Sherilyn Finn, Cheryl Lee, Dana Ashbrook, uh, Ray Wise, and then some of the uh, Robin Lively, who is the, the the bride, I guess, is in it. Uh, oh, yeah. Lenny Von Doolin, who is Harold, plays the sheriff. Oh, weird. Like, they're all, none of them are cast as the same parts that they are in Twin right, Peaks, okay. but it's just okay. they show up as yeah. sort of either amalgamation amalgamations or they're just playing other people's characters, which is really fun. But um, the... 
the thing that was the most surprising thing about the entire thing to me is that they actually have a the, they got Julie Cruz to come in and do oh. an extended version of the theme song and they shot the opening credits for the show with her as it like it just it the amount of effort put into that yeah. for a thing that happened just five years ago or whatever is really high. So you probably mm-hmm. won't. I can't say whether or not you'll care for Psych because it's of a genre of TV that is very different from Twin Peaks. Sure. But if you just want to see what all the cast members of Twin Peaks look like, mm-hmm. uh, you should go watch that show, I guess. It's also just fun. It's probably things that do reference th- that reference Twin Peaks other than The Simpsons. It's probably the strongest one. They apparently wanted to get David Lynch to play the mayor of the town, but they were too afraid to ask him to do it. Oh, man. Hilarious. He would have done it. He wouldn't have done it. I don't know if he would have or not. <laughs> On that note, this is this is nothing like Twin Peaks at all. But just speaking of asking David Lynch to Are you going to talk someone, about Louis? I'm going to talk about Louis because it's amazing. So Louis is one of my is is one of my all-time favorite television shows. Maybe my favorite television show. I know that that's a terrible thing to say on a podcast about Twin Peaks. Um, Whatever. Louis is great. It's 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 I just think it's an extraordinary achievement um, and just really entertaining and good. Uh, anyway, um, one of the interesting things about Louis, which is written and directed by Louis C.K., in which he plays a fictionalized version of himself uh, in the, he he starts as the sh- run of the show goes on. He starts increasingly um, experimenting with format. And one of the things he does is has a, a three episode arc about his character, Louie, being potentially tapped to replace Letterman on The Late Show. And and David Lynch plays this kind of aging, um, I guess, CBS mentor character who who is um, tasked with getting Louie into shape to potentially take this over. And it, it's just, if you've seen Gordon Cole on Twin Peaks, it really enhances the experience of watching David Lynch play this character on that show. I, because <laughs> watching David Lynch give anyone advice seems like it's going to be yeah, good. I mean, I just can't imagine. I'm sure that, that Louis CK is familiar with Twin Peaks and based and based Apparently, David Lynch was like their third choice for that role, actually. Really? Yeah. Wow, that's interesting. I might be pulling that out of my ass, but that is what I remember reading about that. Well, in any case, on being anywhere on the list, I'm sure has to do with David Lynch's appearance as Gordon Cole in Twin Peaks. Because I I just don't know why you would ask someone who's not an actor by trade to to play that role without without that background. Yep. Um, Anyway, it's it's a great it's a great arc. Uh, and it includes David Lynch and also Louis. The show is fantastic pretty much throughout. Yep. Sorry for no <laughs> indulging in that. So are we wrapping this up? Are I you... think that, that, that's probably it for me, unless there's some other things laying around. Uh, no, that's that's probably it. I apologize to to everyone who sent in emails re- in the last couple of weeks and didn't have them read. Um, we got we just got a lot of a lot of email um, and. Uh, a lot of really good email and it just wasn't, it's, it's hard to read all of it. Um, but this has been a really, really, really great experience. This yep. has been like some of the most fun I've ever had on doing a podcast. Yep. Same here. Um, and, uh, thanks for everyone who stuck with us for, I guess, 33 episodes so far. Yep. Uh, man, I was going to say, I'll see you again in 25 weeks, but that is like December. <laughs> I'll see you again in 25 fortnights, Chris. I'll see you. <laughs> 
Um, you also might see us again sooner than that, depending on what your your television habits are, because we are planning on starting up a uh, a new podcast called True Detective Weekly, where we will be watching along with True Detective season two as it airs on HBO, um, starting this month. In fact, yep, uh, just on, a few weeks. Yeah, just just uh, less than two weeks from now. Um, and so our intention is to. Um, follow along with season two um, as it airs, and then after that, follow up with a rewatch. See a, a rewatch of season one. Um, I guess from the perspective of having now seen two episodes of this, uh, two seasons. What did I say? Two episodes. Two episodes. Two seasons of what appears to be kind of an anthology story show, which I find very interesting. Yep. Um, I, uh, I'm looking forward to that. Yep. Same. So we, we're going to set up a website at, um, truedetectiveweekly.com. Um, hopefully that will be up. Hopefully something will be there as a placeholder by the time you, uh, listen to this episode. And we're planning on putting up a sort of an episode zero where we, you know, the week before the new season starts, where we just talk about our thoughts on season one in general and the show and the format the very unusual format that true detective takes, which is a new kind of cast and story each season, which is the reason I'm interested in it. Or one of the reasons I'm interested in it. And, um, I hope you enjoy that. Um, so anyway, thanks for sticking with us through, I guess, seven months as one, as one listener pointed out of twin peaks. It's been great. I'm, I can't wait to come back and do more. Um, if we ever have any reasons to come back and do one-off episodes between now and then, I, you know, there might, there might be a couple of those. So don't, don't delete our, us from your uh, podcast listening. <laughs> please don't, please. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, if you've, if you've enjoyed this and you have, and you want to get other friends into Twin Peaks who are not familiar with the show or maybe are big fans, you know, feel free to, to point them our way. Yep. Um, Hopefully this will just live on as a decent companion piece. I don't know if you just said this, sorry, but I'm sure the time that we will absolutely come back is a couple weeks before Twin Peaks 2016 comes up. Yeah, yeah, I don't think we want to wait until... No, we're going to... Yeah. I'm sure we're going to do a... We're on the cusp of Twin Peaks back on the air. We will know a bunch more about what the show is, and we can do an int- sort of a reintroduction to Twin Peaks rewatch. Yeah. So when the show starts ramping up and you start hearing air dates and other things like that, please check back in on us because we'll probably be around starting to ramp up again. Mm-hmm. Yep, definitely. And... um I guess you can follow us individually on Twitter at twitter.com slash Chris Remo and twitter.com slash J-A-2-K-E. Yep. Um, our, um, as well as the podcast Twitter feed, which is Twin Pe- or, I'm sorry, twitter.com slash Peaks Rewatch. And we will definitely, as we prepare to release any new episodes, we will definitely post about it there. Yep. So um, we'll probably be able to. Uh, be unable to resist tweeting the words "It's happening again" with a link to a podcast. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes, because that's what you do when you have a Twin Peaks podcast that comes back. Yep. Uh, anyway, thanks again to everyone, and we'll see you sometime. Thanks. <laughs>